Today, we're in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 12. This is a story about false advertising. More than ever in our internet age, we're barraged by advertisements. People are always selling something. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, advertisements make promises that sound too good to be true. Now, false advertising is not new. It's as old as dirt. But some companies are just better at, 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 um, they're better at doing it longer. Now, according to the New York Magazine of the Week, Listerine, the mouthwash, has a long and somewhat notorious history of false advertising claims. And I quote, (laughs) Listerine, they say, was the first ever over-the-counter mouthwash sold in the United States in 1914. And by 1921, it was already falsely marketing its product. It declared itself as, count the number, a cure-all for the common cold, like sore throats and coughs. It was a dandruff preventative, didn't know that, an aftershave tonic, a safe way to protect yourself from cuts, bruises, wounds, stings. Listerine was slapped with numerous false advertisement lawsuits. I would love to know how to protect myself from stings. Do I take a bottle of Listerine and rub it all over my arms? No, thank you. Listerine said it could heal and fix Everything And for decades, actually, it went on to say that if you gargled with Listerine twice a day, you would be able to cure and eliminate the effects of the common cold. The problem was, that wasn't true. And so in 1975, the Federal Trade Commission ordered Listerine to spend $10 million in corrective advertisement saying that their product was no more effective than treating, in treating colds than gargling warm water. False advertisements. They say, cure the cold by gargling twice with Listerine a day. The truth is, it's no more effective than gargling warm water. Okay, so if you have a cold, don't use Listerine for, to fix your cold. Now, you might have bad breath. And you should use Listerine, but it's of no use fighting the common cold. Now, when a company makes claims like this, that they can't back up, it's kind of a nuisance, and we might laugh at the different ways that it could protect us from bruises and stings. But when an institution makes spiritual claims it can't back up, it's much more than a nuisance. It's deadly. It's one thing to get suckered by the claims of a product. It's another thing to get suckered by the claims of religious institution. And today, we join Jesus as he calls out a religious institution. He says, these claims of advertisements of life and hope and meaning, they're false. We're going to see that Jesus is not fooled by the fake. Jesus is not fooled by the fake. Jesus can see, he knows. You're going to see him call out the fake today. You see, people can build a wall of religiosity bedecked with good works, good deeds, and good intentions, and yet it be fake. While others might be fooled, Jesus never is. 
Jesus is not fooled by the fake. No matter what the advertisements say. I'm going to read beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Actually, I'll start in verse 11. And we'll go down to, to verse 25. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, he being Jesus, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if, it could, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cur- that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So ends the reading of God's Word. Now, for those of us scoring at home, this is a strange and somewhat scary passage. We have the cursing of the fig tree, the clearing of the temple, and then the dead fig tree. It's a strange collection of stories, but it has a point. Jesus is not fooled by the fake. Let's find out how. First, we see we join Jesus on the way to the temple. In Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Now, two weeks ago when we were with Jesus, he was entering Jerusalem to the shouts and acclamations of hundreds, if not thousands of people. But when he got to the temple, as we saw in verse 11, he came to the temple, he looked around at everything, and there was nobody there to greet him. So he left, made the two-mile journey to Bethany, got an Airbnb there in that town, and decided to come back. So it was a two-mile walk back to the temple. And so we know that he must have gotten an early start, the, 12, the Jesus and the Twelve, because it appears that Jesus got away without any breakfast. The te- text tells us he was hungry. The disciples, they prioritized food, so they weren't hungry. Jesus, who knows, he's probably praying, interacting with other people, serving others. He's hungry. Now, if you think Jesus is some kind of spirit being that didn't have a body, 
false. He's hungry, just like you, just like me. And so Jesus is hungry, and he sees this fig tree from a distance. From a distance, the tree looks like it has a lot to offer. It's green, and it's in bloom. But upon closer inspection, we see something else. Look at verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Now, I have read more about fig trees in the Mediterranean world this week than I ever care to read in the rest of my life. Why in the world would Jesus expect to find figs on a tree when it wasn't season for figs? Now, when I think fig, I think fig Newton, right? And so, and that's the only way I will ever eat figs is packaged between cake. And so, a fig tree in the Mediterranean world yields two kinds of figs. The figs that we use, I would suppose, if those are real, and fig Newtons, they, they come in the summer. The other kind of fig are those that come in the spring. Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem in late March or early April, and at this time, the, the, green, the green leaves come in to the tree, and what Jesus is looking for is what accompanies those green leaves, these little nodules. They're called early figs. There's a Hebrew word that I didn't know how to pronounce, so I call them early figs, and I recommend you call them early figs too. So Jesus... He comes to look at the tree. He sees there's leaves. He knows that on every other fig tree where there are these leaves, being that he created all of them, he knows that there should be these nodules on these leaves. And so because he's hungry, he sees this fig tree in the distance, and it seems to be shouting, I've got fruit. Look at all my leaves. Jesus comes, and upon closer inspection, there is nothing there to offer the hungry Traveler, nothing there to offer our Lord who is hungry. It's a case of false advertisement. Verse 15, 14. And then Jesus does something unexpected. May no one ever eat from you again. We have no record of what the tree said in response. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now, we know in a little bit because we read it that this tree is going to wither from the roots up. Now, they're going to see that in the next day. Now, this tree, before we see the dead tree, they're going to visit the gleaming temple. The temple was just like this fig tree. It had all the signs of visible life and fruit. It was bustling with activity. It was bursting with noise. The temple advertised, come here and meet with God. Let's see how Jesus interacts with the temple. So we move from the fig tree to the temple. That's going to be in verses 15 through 19. Now, when we read, and he entered the temple, we're not going to be able to grasp the immensity of this structure. This temple was no small building or no unimpressive complex. It was really a complex. It was like a compound. It was on more than 35 acres. And just for a frame of reference, the land we're standing or sitting on right now is five acres, so it's seven times the size of this land. That's what we're talking about. So the temple that Jesus and his disciples walked up on was massive. Not only was it massive, it was beautiful. 
The temple building itself was made of pure marble. Pure marble. So the temple had pure marble without any imperfections. What makes marble pretty oftentimes are the gray ridges and lines that are all throughout the, the rock. But the temple had none of those ridges and lines. It was pure white. And more than that, there were all kinds of parts of the structure that was overlaid with gold. One historian of the time said that no one could look at the temple in the sunlight because it was too bright. So now let's get the picture. Jesus and his disciples crest the Mount of Olives, and they have the sun at their back, and they look from the top of the Mount of Olives, and they see this temple gleaming, shining, massive, tens of thousands of people packing every inch inside this facility. And the temple screams, there's life, there's vitality. Here is where you meet with God. And it seems so true because the disciples wouldn't have been able to look at the temple. They had to turn their eyes because it was too bright. It screamed, or seemed to scream, God lives here. Like the fig tree, Jesus comes close to inspect for fruit, and he finds it wanting. Look at verse 15. Right away, he goes right at it. He enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, the place that Jesus is doing all of this is in the court of the Gentiles. That is where the only place in the temple of God at the time that Gentiles, being non-Jews, or the nations, could go to worship God. They were not allowed in the other parts of the temple. And so, if a non-Jew was to come to God, he or she must come to this court of the Gentiles. They must come to offer prayers and worship there. But... The whole area looked like a county fair, not like the house of God. More than that, verse 16, we read that Jesus sets up roadblocks. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You see, the temple had this thoroughfare through town. It was big enough to where people could cut through the temple and go from one side of town to the other. And so they would cut through the court of the Gentiles. Kind of like a, it was a thoroughfare. It's like the 60, you cut through Um, the place that was supposed to welcome Gentiles to worship the one true God had become part flea market and part freeway. And Jesus is like, no, we're not doing this. Jesus came close to the temple that looked like it was in full bloom, and on further inspection, like the fig tree, there was nothing there. There was no fruit. Remember, it's Passover time, so the temple is packed. There's all kinds of noise. There's all kinds of smells. The temple is that one place in the world that promised to take mankind from earth to God. And yet, God determined that that wasn't happening. Jesus is not fooled by the fake. Now we can see what gets his anger going in verse 17. So now, now imagine this. He throws everything down. He kicks everybody out. He says, you can't walk through here. You can't walk through here. You need to stop Why? He tells us. Never does things without reason. 
He tells us. Here's what he taught. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's from Isaiah chapter 56. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, so what Jesus did, Mark just gives us a brief brief summary of the verses that he used, but that's not all that he said. Essentially, what he was saying here was this. Isaiah promised that this house, the house of God, the temple, should be that place that people from every nation could come and meet the God, the the true and living God. Isaiah said that anyone from anywhere could come and worship this true God, and yet... The scribes and the chief priests, the leaders of the temple, were saying the exact opposite. They were saying to the Gentiles that would have come from a long distance, they were saying, you are not welcome. You are not welcome. We would rather have money being exchanged, pigeons being sold. We would rather open this up so that people can walk to and fro. We do not care about you. Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders and says, this is not the intention of my house. I love how he says, my house. Your house, huh? Yeah, my house. Jesus cleared the court of the Gentiles so that men and women who had no place to go And no way to meet God could come and go. Now, today, remember, today things are different. Today there is no such thing as a holy place on earth. No such thing. That wasn't the case then. We can worship Jesus in any building. We can worship Jesus anywhere together. And we collectively make the church. We are the holy place. But in that time, the faithful followers of God had to worship in the temple. And yet, the chief priests put up barricades. The authorities did not care if the Gentiles had no place to worship God. Jesus did. Jesus cared. Not only did he say, you're violating the whole purpose of this temple. Not only does he do that, he says something else that makes them angry so that they decide they want to destroy him. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. You see, the chief priests and the scribes don't want to just kill him because they had a mild disagreement. They want to kill him because he called them robbing, thieving, lying scoundrels. That's what Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11 says. Jeremiah is speaking to the priests of his day, saying, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, which is a false god, And go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah says of the priests of his day, how they made the temple into something it was not designed to be, is exactly what Jesus says to the priests of that day. They steal, they murder, they commit adultery, and come to the temple and act like everything's okay. And Jesus goes, no! No, sir! You, chief priests, you, scribes, you 
are corrupt. You are no better than the two-bit brigands that look to ambush people along the road, that look to rob and steal and kill, that look to take everything they can, commit adultery and swear falsely and take all their goods and bring them into some kind of hidden secret cave. You are no better than them. And what you're doing is much worse because you're not running off to some hidden cave. You're hiding in the temple. You're using all the trappings of religiosity and saying, it's God's will. And God the Son shows up and says, false. 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 This house, he says, is a prayer. It is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Anyone's welcome. And, he says, those that are in charge of this house, they're like, they're thieves. Kent Hughes says it well when he says, the Lord saw this for what it was, a monstrous desecration of holy ground. That same ground was the ground that God met Isaiah when he transported him to the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. It was the place that God directed David to build the temple on the threshing floor there. It was that place that the whole nation of Israel got down on their knees and Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple and God came in a cloud and consumed the sacrifices, that place had become desecration by the scribes and chief priests of Jesus' day. What the holy ground had become unholy and corrupt. And Jesus calls them out. You know what? Jesus is not fooled by the fake. And we see the temple is just like the fig tree. It advertised vitality and life. It advertised hope. It advertised, come here and meet with our God. Not only could the Gentiles not come in and meet with God, upon closer inspection, the temple and the chief priest and the scribe had nothing to offer. And so when Jesus taught, verse 18, the scribes and the chief priests, they heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now the crowd was astonished for two reasons. First, Jesus called out the authorities so brashly. Nobody did that. Jesus did. He wouldn't suffer the fake. And the second reason is that he cared about the Gentiles, the chief priests of the temple expected and taught that the Messiah would come and clear Jerusalem of all the Gentiles and establish his throne on earth. And instead, the Messiah came and cleared the temple of all the religious phonies so that the Gentiles could worship. It was backwards, not what they expected. Jesus did not clear the temple of Gentiles. He cleared the temple for Gentiles. Jesus cared about the outcasts and the people that no one else gave a thought. It might not seem like much if you read this text, but here we see the mission of Christ coming to the lost so that they might be found, coming to the blind so that they might see, coming to the dead so that they might live, coming to the hopeless so that they might have a hope, coming to those who have nothing to look forward to and saying, come to me and I, those of you who who are, are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will be a strong shelter. I will be a refuge. Jesus cares for the lost and the wandering and the place and and where no one else, where a place where no one has to go. Jesus was making room for those who thought they were lost by kicking out the religious who thought they were safe. So very often, fake religion masquerades behind self righteousness. 
That's why, make no mistake, this was an opportunity for the chief priests and the scribes to, to be repentant, to say, oh my, what have we done? We violated the purpose of this building. We've desecrated this place. Please forgive us. But that's not what they said. Instead, they try to kill him. See, often, often, the fake who, are tra- who, who put on the trappings of religion are the most self-righteous. They can't suffer to be corrected or ever be proven wrong. And anybody who dares cross them, they go after them with a zeal, an unholy zeal. That's exactly what happens here. Jesus came to the temple that day to those who needed help. He still offers that help. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus doesn't come for those who think they're okay. He comes for those who know they're not. We go from the temple back to the fig tree. Fig tree, temple, back at the fig tree. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That tree that seemed to say, come to me, I have fruit to give, would not have any more fruit now forever. It was withered from the roots up. And the tree was just like the temple. Just as the tree gave a false appearance of life, the temple did too. The tree was green, And seemingly healthy. The tree said, come eat fruit from me. The temple is gleaming and full of activity. And advertises, come meet God here. The tree advertised, I have fruit. But it had none. The temple advertised, I have fruit. But it had none. The tree had nothing to give the hungry. Just as the temple had nothing to give the hungry. The tree was fake. And so was the temple. The tree was cursed and withered. The temple was likewise cursed. And the withering didn't happen overnight. It took a few decades. But sure enough, the Romans would come in and destroy this building. And we see a foreshadowing of what would happen to this corrupt institution. Jesus connected the fig tree and the temple. The fig tree seemed to be alive but, was, but had nothing to offer. The temple seemed to have life, but had nothing to offer. And so when Peter points this out and says, wow, look at this, Jesus then answers him in a very strange way. Verse 22, Peter says, the fig, 21, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, how is that an answer? That's not an answer. What is an answer but it's not the question they're looking for. But you know what Jesus is doing here? He goes on now to talk about having faith in God. He talks about how to pray, and then he talks about when you pray, the kind of attitude you're to have toward other people. What he's doing here is he's reorienting their lives. These disciples, these these followers of Jesus, thought that the center of life and religion and hope was on a building. And Jesus says, it's on me now. We're recentering everything. Authenticity looks 
like having faith in me. Here's what it looks like to be real, to be authentic. Here's what it looks like, verse 22, have faith in God. Now faith, that can be a word that is misused and that can be a word that is misunderstood, but really all Jesus is saying is trust God. Trust God and not religious activity. You see, it's a great temptation to trust in the activity of religion, to trust in the activity of prayer, trust in the activity of communion, trust in the activity of doing good things. But what Jesus is saying here is something quite different. He's saying trust in God. And the only way you'll be able to trust in God, that will become clear as we walk through Mark, is to trust, is to come to God in Christ. The new order of things would now focus on Jesus, the Son of God, and not a building. No longer would the presence of God be in a building in the midst of the people of God. The presence of God would be in the people of God. In other words, the key to not being fake is trusting in God. Those who aren't fake have the Holy Spirit living within them. And to trust God, you must know Jesus. See, it's trusting not in the activities that went on in the temple, but trusting in the one who came to take the place of the temple. More than that, Jesus then says something that sounds like a bit of false advertising. Verse 23, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, we don't know for sure which mountain Jesus is pointing at, but we do know the temple is on Mount Moriah, that temple that would soon be destroyed. could be that he's pointing at that mountain, saying, going to be as if that mountain is thrown into the sea. But yet, your faith will not be shaken because your faith is not in the building. Your faith is in me. Now, preachers, I'll tell you one of the things when preachers come to verses like 24, they say, man, I don't like this. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We shy away from this because we think, damn, aren't we setting people up for an expectation that can't be delivered? Whatever we ask for in prayer, fascinating. I think one of the things we need to recognize here, two things. First, this isn't the only thing Jesus said about prayer. We have the Lord's Prayer that we can look at in two of the other Gospels, but also, He's saying, remember from the beginning, we're to have faith in God, meaning we're to center ourselves on God. We're to consider ourselves, center ourselves on Him and His will and His word. We're to center ourselves on His preferences and on His desires for our lives. This is not a verse that tells us if we pray the right prayers, we can get the right truck. But it's a verse that should guide us. And you know what, as I was reading and studying and thinking 
about this sermon and praying for myself, I was convicted that my prayers are so small and so self-focused. Like, Lord, help me to have a good day. It's not bad, but it's not enough. You see, those who have their lives, the authentic, not the fake, the authentic, who have their lives built on Jesus and who have faith in God, they're going to see that God can do things in and through them that they would not have, they wouldn't pray on their own. God has a bigger plan than just how you and I can be fulfilled. Think about how he calls us to pray in other places. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So often I pray, my kingdom come. My will be done. I wonder if my prayers, and I know my prayers aren't as God-centered as they ought to be, but I wondered if yours are as focused on God as they ought to be. Those who have faith in God, those who trust God, those who orient their lives around God are going to pray things in line with God's will. Here's the kind of things that we can pray and ask for and believe that he will do. Scary things. Things like, make me into what you want me to be no matter what it takes. We can pray, help me to value holiness over happiness. Because that's not natural. We can pray, give me the strength to overlook the slights of others to me and think the best of others. Let me know you more. Give me the strength to be content in and through all my trials. Grow me to become a man or a woman like you. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Not mine. You see, those who have their lives centered on Jesus, who trust God, who have faith in Him, they look at the promises of God that that we see from the Scriptures and pray those for themselves. They're not fake. The fake pray for those things that they think will make them happy. Those things that God doesn't promise to give us. Authenticity, the unfaked, the real, centers on God. Praise big prayers to God. And also has right understandings of other people. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. That is so strange. So strange that we go from fig tree, temple, fig tree, forgiveness. Why is that strange? It's strange because we wouldn't expect it. But it's not strange in another level. Those who are fake don't forgive. Remember, Jesus is coming after the fake. He's coming after those who make false advertising claims. You see, the fake don't forgive others. The fake hold bitterness inside. The fake refuse to overlook. The fake Refuse to forgive. 
The fake hold on to hurt and pain, foster offenses, and say nobody understands. The fake don't forgive. But Jesus knows the authentic do. A close examination of the authentic Christian shows a willingness to forgive others. That's one of the fruit. It's one of the fruit that the Lord is looking for. Understand today that just as Jesus walked toward that fig tree looking for fruit, he's doing the same with us. He's walking in and amongst all of us here today. And he's looking for fruit. One of the signs of fruit is a willingness to forgive. When you don't forgive others, you act as if you don't need to be forgiven of many sins. You lie about God and you lie about yourself. Both lies are bad. Authentic followers of Jesus will always forgive others. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy or simple. And it doesn't mean you just do it once. Sometimes I have to forgive somebody 1,027 times in my head because it keeps coming up. I have to keep pushing it away. But authentic followers of Jesus will always forgive others. Fake followers won't. Now, take this. Remember the chief priests and the scribes, they knew the Bible. They knew what Messiah would do. They knew God, and yet they were fake. If you're here and you're confident in your relationship with Jesus because you know the right answers, or because you, know that you, because you can say the right things, because you can pray the right prayers, because you can read the right scriptures, and yet your life is one that lacks forgiveness, you might be fake. Are you more inclined to hold on to rancorness to rancorous bitterness or forgiveness. Because if you hold on to bitterness, you might be fake. And Jesus will not be fooled. You might fool this whole room, but he won't be fooled. He knows. Fruit doesn't make you a Christian, but it shows that you're a Christian. What does your fruit say? What does your fruit say? Now remember, none of us are perfect. Jesus didn't come to the fig tree looking for a steak dinner. He came to the fig tree looking for what the fig tree could give, which was little nodules of fruit. What does your life say? Do you have fruit in keeping with repentance and following Jesus? Are you authentic or fake? Is your life like a Listerine ad promising saying things that you don't live up to? Or is your life centered on Jesus? Because Jesus, he is not fooled by the fake. The fake might be able to point to religious knowledge or spiritual experience, maybe even doctrinal specificity, and yet not be real. Authentic Christians don't just believe and say the right things. They have fruit. And you have to come close to see that fruit. What does people see in you? More importantly, what does Jesus see in you? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you think, man, I don't have this fruit. Jesus never turns anyone away. Anyone who is willing to recognize, I need help 
He will always make a way. Look at what he did for the Gentiles who aren't even seen in this picture. We see Jesus clearing the whole temple so that the Gentiles could come in and have a place to meet with God. Anybody who is willing to receive help, that's a work of the Spirit. Anyone who's willing to receive help can come to Jesus and he will clear everything out and welcome you in and say, you're mine. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to do that. Talk to another Christian. We'll have people here who can pray for you. If you are a Christian, or maybe there, there's got to be in a room this size people who, who think they are Christians because they know certain things, but yet are fake. That's not, I can't tell that. Others can't tell that, but Jesus can. What are you? Maybe there's those of us who are Christians and recognize, man, I'm holding on to some bitterness and some anxiety. I'm holding on to, to stuff I shouldn't. Please forgive me. That's authentic. That's, that's trusting in God. Jesus sees who we are and knows our fruit. He's not fooled. He's not fooled. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each of us in this room here this morning. I don't know the state of every soul or the disposition of every heart, but I do know that every person here now needs a touch from you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with us in power. I pray that you would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in this room who say, hey, I am a Christian because I know these things, I know this or I know that, but is unwilling to forgive, I pray that you would bring upon them a sense of, just a sense of conviction. Lord, don't want any to be numbered among the scribes and the chief priests. When you came near, they pushed back and decided, not how they might repent, but how they might destroy. The fake always look to destroy those who confront. So, our Lord, help us not to be the fake. I pray for all of us to center our lives around you, Jesus. I pray that we would trust in God, that we would come to God, that we would stake all of our life and hope and help on him. And I pray that you would help us to be authentic, bearing fruit, Lord, none of us will be perfect. And so as we are aware of, as you make us by your spirit aware of flaws, Lord, come to you and ask for help. You never turn any away who asks for help. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.